This episode of Little Bit of Life podcast is sponsored by Idlewild Everyday. It is a new line of jewelry that has been created by Tabitha Frazier and originally founded in 2018. Her love for creating one-of-a-kind pieces from unique quality elements shines through in her new modern elevated line. She has demi-fine pieces with quality marked to maintain the highest quality of standards and transparency. Working with many different manufacturers that utilize solar power in their factories, it allows Idlewild Everyday to bring you staff hand-assembled, finished, and beautiful pieces with great care to their studio and into your home. They have recently added a fine fashion line made from steel as the base metal. Since steel is very durable, long-lasting, and accepts plating well, it is one of the best options for fashion jewelry. I am so excited to share with you this company, Idlewild Everyday, that also believes in giving back to the community who supports them. They are honored to regularly donate to organizations who care for and support women and children, homeless initiatives, veteran needs, inner city reading programs, and children's cancer research. Make sure you check out today's episode that is specifically brought to you with high quality video that shows and features her beautiful masterpieces, such as her necklaces, her bracelets, her earrings, and much more. Make sure you order today at idlewhileeveryday.com and also use the special discount code TAB20 for listening and supporting today. Welcome to Little Bit of Life podcast with your host, Tabitha, better known as Little. A lot of you may know her from social media, but Little is shown off the apps. Dedicated to having the real, raw, and occasional chats about what we seem to think, but don't say. Special guests will join in along the way that have impacted her in a profound way. Very little is left off limits, so sit back, enjoy, and here's your host. Hey guys, welcome into a very special episode where we speak to a very special guest, Audrey Hepburn. We know her, we've watched her, we've loved her, our parents grew up with her, and so did we. She was an icon, a fashionista, showing class and elegance, but she was also a mother, and this is a part that so many didn't get to know or see. I am so honored to share with you this very special episode with her son, Sean Hepburn Ferrer, where we talk about what life was like with Audrey being his mother, how she truly was, and how they're keeping her legacy alive after over 30 years. Please enjoy this very special episode and make sure that you check us out in the very special video premiere on Spotify and YouTube. Feel like part of the action and feel like part of the interview right with us. guys, welcome into another episode of Little Bit of Life podcast with Little. As you know, we always talk about topics that just seem to be what we seem to think but don't say. And today I'm talking about an actress that just came out of a situation that she came from a war-driven childhood, malnutrition, but she was not only that, but she was an actress iconic female of our time. Um, she was the legend, the icon displayed And most don't know her for who she truly was. There is a new Netflix documentary that is out, and I have an amazing guest on with me today, and his name is Sean, and I will allow him to introduce himself to let us know why he's here to speak with us today and who we are talking about, that we are really just honoring her legacy and her life. 
Hi, Tabitha. Thank you so much for having me on. I guess you have having me on because this podcast is about Audrey Hepburn and she was my mother. What an incredible person that not only you were raised in, like most people say, you were not raised in almost what they say, the Hollywood um, sense. I love everything that I've read about you and your mother. You were raised very down to earth, very simple. So how is it to live with a mother that is so iconic, even generations later for us? Well, at first I didn't. Um, and um, it took a while to understand she was an actress. I'm not going to date myself. In those days, when I was a kid, there were only two channels on TV, and they were both black and white. Uh, and uh, so with time, I realized that my mother wasn't just in the house, but also on TV. And then with time, I started to discover her films. Uh, in those days, actors, we didn't have DVDs or even VHS or Betamax cassettes. So in those days, actors got a 16-millimeter copy of their films at the end of the production. And we had those in the attic. And so I stretched out a sheet and I started to watch her films. But I guess it didn't really all connect up to the extent, uh, the complete picture until she became ill and the outpouring and um, the reaction to her loss uh, set in. So her, her legacy is really a three-part you know, uh, a legacy. It's it's the actress, of course, or b better to say the movie star because she was sort of a phenomenon much more so than she was an able actress, as she liked to say about herself. Um, and then there is this sort of icon of style, of inner and outer elegance, someone who sort of chose a style and a look and followed it throughout her life rather than follow fashion, if you may. And then ultimately, the last chapter of her life, which really was dedicated to children through her ambassadorship with UNICEF. And that sort of, uh, those three parts make a whole today, I think, and they're inextricable. When she came out, especially in the film industry, it was something that in that era, she was up against women such as Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, those that displayed signs of sex in a time that was frowned upon. And that's what made her a legend and so different with her fashion sense is she was so classy and so elegant, but she was something that was new and fresh. But it was interesting to me watching the Netflix documentary about her is that once she did kind of peak at her fame, I mean, we've seen her in Breakfast at Tiffany's, we've seen her in Sabrina, but when she became a mother, that was one of her most prized roles in her life. And she really wanted to take a step back from her contracts and really be a mother. So growing up, um, like you said, you didn't really realize that she was an icon and she was famous. Um, and especially she's known for her fashion and for her films. But like you said, she had a love and a passion to help families and children working with UNICEF. Do you think that had something to do with her upbringing? Um, the documentary does show that her father left her at a very young age. So she always had that sense of yearning and mothership. So did, do you think that that kind of also drove her to work with UNICEF and helping with other families and children? That's, that's a brimming cup of information you've just thrown out at me. Let me start by saying, since you spoke about when she was discovered, um, uh, this year is an important year. It marks 30 years since we lost her, but also 70 years since uh, she was discovered uh, 
in Hollywood. Obviously, she was discovered before that by Colette on a beach in Monte Carlo, and she brought her to Broadway to be in Gigi, and that's then where the scouts from Paramount came to ultimately choose her to be the princess in Roman Holiday. Um, and at 23, she got an Academy Award for it. <clears throat> uh, now let's go back to the other part of your question, which I think has to do with UNICEF. Yes, there's no doubt that she never forgot what it meant to lose everything that we take for granted. Um, going, crossing the street is not something you could take for granted in those days. Uh, when you're the longest occupation during the war, and unfortunately we're reliving um, the vestiges of that with the war in Ukraine, unfortunately, it seems like we we decide not to learn from history and, uh, and it repeats itself. Um, and so that, together with the loss, she always spoke about hunger, not just physical hunger, but emotional hunger. So yes, she spoke about the loss of her father. Uh, and I think those are all the reasons why, one, like you said, she gave up her career, she wanted to be a mom, and uh, when she had the opportunity to do so, and by the time I had to go to school and couldn't visit her on the set anymore, uh, she decided to stay home and be a full-time mom. Uh, and subsequently, when we had left home and she could sort of enlarge the circle, if you may, uh, to, to do the work for UNICEF for the last five years of her life. Being such a young child and going on to set, what was it like back in that era of seeing your mother working on a film and being at such a young age surrounded by so many influential people? <laughs> I was six by the time she gave up. So these are what I like to refer to as instinctive memories. Um, I do remember the set. I do remember the lights, you know. But obviously, I was brought to the set to visit maybe at lunch or and then a back home to nap and dinner, whatever. I wasn't just hanging on the set the whole time. I did later on have that opportunity when I worked with her on the Bogdanovich film, They All Laughed, and I visited as a young adult her on other sets. And then, of course, I was in the business myself for 15 years full time until she passed away and I sort of, you know, um, decided to this was the hand that this family was dealt and uh, it seemed like what she had done was of a greater value than anything else that i could see and so i decided to sort of continue in her larger than life footprints if you may to continue to do her work which is what she sort of the echo you know that was left um, from her sudden disappearance and to continue to try and help us all understand uh, how the children of our world are our greatest asset. They, everything we're doing is ultimately to pass something on to someone. And so the question is, you know, what are we doing? Um, she was against this whole charitable system, if you may. She viewed her role 
in a very sort of practical and simple way, which was you're sitting in your living room and you hear a thump, you run outside, a kid's been hit by a car. You don't sort of hang around and discuss, you know, why did he run after his ball or why were you going too fast? You pick him up and you run to the hospital. That's, but at the same time, she was a firm believer in giving them the tools. She used to say, give them a spade to dig their wells, let it not be to dig the grave of their children, uh, to give them tools to be self-supporting, you know, which we seem to be unable for a multitude of reasons, not all of them the fault of us, the developing world, if you, or the developed world, if you may. Uh, but in many cases, yes, and mostly, I would think, uh, I blame ideology before all. And um, that's probably one of the greatest gifts she gave us as a family is to grow up in an ideology-free environment. And I think that's a huge, that's probably the greatest thing she left behind. There was a quote that I saw that she stated that she takes what she did seriously, but she did not take herself seriously. Outside of the films and the sets and just being a mom, was she playful? She seemed so silly and just gentle, especially her soul just seemed so gentle. She was. And at the same time, um, she was not a softy in the sense that uh, way back, uh, my wife at the time, I've been married more than once, said that she was the, uh, the steel fist in the velvet glove. You know, ballet dancer, arduous training, the hunger, the war, the two uh, 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 women by themselves having to move to London right after the war. It's not like today where you buy a ticket on the Ryanair EasyJet and an hour later you're there. Traveling from Holland without any money to, to London was no easy feat and papers and this and that. And <clears throat> but in any event, uh, and then becoming you know, together with Elizabeth Taylor, the first woman to make a million dollars before many of the men made a million dollars. Wearing, you know, cigarette pants when most women could not wear pants or vote or open an account without the consent of their husbands deep into the 70s in many countries in Europe. I'm not talking about Afghanistan here. So... I think something that is very relevant to our conversation is <clears throat> the necessity for us as a society, and it appears we've forgotten to do that, to view things through the lens of time. We seem to sort of look at everything as if it were happening right now. And so, of course, by our standards today, nothing is acceptable that has happened before. But I think when you are, when you drill down a little bit and you understand, you put yourself, which is the secret, and she used to say it, of any relationship, whether it's with a person or with a fact or with a piece of history, you put yourself in the other person's shoes. You know, we come to, I live in Italy uh, near Florence, and you go and you see these works of art, and you go, oh, lovely. But if you start to realize that they were painted in darkness with candles, with pigments that would, did not come from the local art store and you know, with all the facilities that we have today, everything, you know, 
needs that lens. Uh, and I think it's a struggle, first of all, not to be judgmental, but also to be able to do that. It's very important mm -hmm. as we, we are today wrangling with newfound liberty, equality, all of which is wholly uh, deserved, mm -hmm. no matter how late it's coming. But at the same time, um, we cannot go back and revisit the past and judge the past without that clarity. It amazes me that she started off not with the idea that she wanted a career in film. She wanted to be a ballerina. She wanted to be a dancer. And it's amazing to see her sense of adjustment of being told, you know, with her height and her malnutrition that she would not be succeeding as a ballerina, but that didn't let her get down in her dreams. She completely shifted, she adjusted, and then she went into theater, which was unbelievable to me that she had this drive and tenacity to be a ballerina. And when she was told by society, the answer is no, she did not allow that to stop her. It she wasn't so much society. It was, my mother had the great gift of sort of keeping things simple. And she trusted this woman, Marie Rambert, who was the ballet teacher in London at the time, which is why I just told you mm -hmm. that they moved to London. Um, and, uh, she, you know, uh, she was Nijinsky's tra training teacher. Um, and, and after a few years of working very hard, she said to her, do you think I can make it as a prima ballerina? And the woman said, um, I would love to say yes, but you're too tall. The dancers can't pick you up. We've all heard the stories, you know, and of course also the, some malnutrition during the war. And so not being able to train as rigorously and as often as she wanted to. All of those things made it so that Marie felt um, that she wouldn't ever make it as a prima ballerina. And she'd rather break her dream now than string her along. And she'd been living in the house with Marie Rambert while my grandmother was working as a, you know, concierge in a luxury apartment building and washing the stairs. I mean, they were scraping. They were scraping by. And, of course, that was a crashing um, heartbreak for her. You know, she did bury her, her head in the pillow and have a hard cry. Um, but at the same time, she trusted this woman. She had come all the way, and she didn't yank that trust when the woman didn't say what she wanted to hear. Now I'm going to sort of present value uh, you know, that story and today and you'd go and, you know, um, you'd go to someone else to get a second opinion or a different opinion. She trusted that woman and she would live or die by what she said. And so after the good cry, like you said, she didn't crumble very much because she couldn't afford to. I mean, they, she couldn't sort of stop and feel sorry for herself and the background and, you know, the upbringing and the Victorian sort of the British keep your up, up, you know, stiff upper lip and all of that good stuff. So, um, yes, in the end, she went on and did the next thing and the next thing and the mm -hmm. rest. What is your favorite memory that you have of your mother? 
Well, there's, there's many. I'm often asking, I can't sort of encapsulate it in one moment. But certainly the times that we spent, as a little boy, she used to invite me for a sleepover like parents do sometimes. You know, In those days, you had your own bedroom and you slept there, you know, 360 days a year. And then sometimes, you know, a special occasion or whatever, you get a sleepover and you chat with the lights off about this and that and the other those magical moments in your memory of a child and i got a few more of those while she was ill because she was in bed and i would sort of doze off on this wicker armchair next to her bed and put my feet up on a little ottoman thing and with a blanket and if she needed anything i'd wake up uh, the nurse that had come with us from Los Angeles had to go home for her family after a few days. And um, so I took over her care and TPN and all that good stuff. Um, but, um, and certainly mostly the pain management, the bolus machine and all of that. So, <clears throat> and so she'd wake up in the middle of the night and we'd chat about important things and in retrospective, even though they may not have seemed important at the time, they're, they're vital, they're, they're precious. And it, it's from really the trampoline of this book that I wrote now, you know, a couple decades ago, uh, was really born as a letter to my children who would grow up not knowing their grandmother. And she wasn't just another grandmother, bless all grandmothers. And she was also sort of this person who would leave awake that they may hear about and want to know about her. And so I decided to sit down and then this friend who's also an heir of a, of a legendary, of the legendary agent, Swifty Lazar, my friend Alan Nevins said, you know, you, this, is, this is a book if you sort of, and I wasn't sure I wanted to do it, but then again, I did and it, uh, it turned out okay. Uh, but that was really the beginning and those conversations were, um, the first steps, you know, fledgling steps of that book. Do you see traits of your mother in her grandchildren that they have picked up? I did see that one is an artist, so I wondered if she's, if you've seen those traits passed down. Emma, Emma was the first one to sort of exhibit the bug early on as a little girl. She wanted to dance, of course, and, and, uh, and she could do accents, and she was very funny. She's now grown up and sort of wants to be an artist and not a performer. And I respect that. I'm happy for her that she didn't choose. I didn't sort of try and push her one way or the other. When she wanted to try it, she did. And after she tried, she said, I'd rather work at Starbucks than do this <laughs> ever again. And of course, life is such that maybe in 10 years, she'll go back to maybe not being a model, but an actress. Who knows? But right now, she's a sort of a tomboy, you know, with, with torn jeans and, and paint all over. And, and she works in a foundry uh, that's owned by her boyfriend, uh, you know, at the beachside here in Tuscany. And, uh, so, but she does have that. But I, I think it sort of runs in the genes. Uh, there were sad times growing up. My mother went through one and another divorce. And naturally, kids always want to... To ease the pain and so I was always a joker and a comedian and an imitator and made her laugh 
from the belly, which is probably one of the greatest things, you know, that I have to look back upon as far as what I was able to do with this precious individual was to make her laugh really hard. And that's, that's good enough for me. I did see that you founded the Audrey Hepburn Children's Fund in memory of your mother. Can you share a little bit about that with us? Well, right now we're we're in the process. It's been 30 years, so we're in the process of retooling all of this. My brother lives in Europe. I live in Europe. We're not in America. The, the Audrey Hepburn Children's Fund was a U.S. 501c3. Uh, it's now being wound, wound down. We had then the... Uh, the, uh, I was the I left the foundation to my brother, and I moved over to the Audrey Hepburn Society at UNICEF, which ran for many years and raised close to a quarter of a billion dollars for children and so forth. And now um, I have two entities in Europe. You know, uh, they're like children. You want to have them close by, counting and all of that. So you want to be. So I have a, a nonprofit in Switzerland called the Audrey Hepburn Society Association, uh, and one in Belgium, which is rededicated to an exhibition that I launched for what would have been her 90th birthday uh, in Brussels. And then it went on to Belgium, then the pandemic hit, and um, we're sort of putting it back together now. So that gets the, the proceeds, the benefits from that. Mm -hmm. So, but I think in this, in this next phase, um, if if we are going to continue to um, to meet the urgency and the needs of both man-made and natural disasters, I think an equal share and then of, of our of our efforts, or at least of my efforts, uh, I can't speak for my brother, will be to encourage. A, a new way of thinking and the absolute, I mean, she said it 30 years ago and we're still not there. So I think it's important to pound it now. Uh, we need to give these people the freedom. However, I mean, you know, here we are helping Ukraine, you know, and as we speak, every country is sending support to Turkey and uh, Syria for the devastating earthquake. We have the means, we have the ability, we have the technology. We are better off than we've ever been from that point of view. The, the capacity, the capacity is there, is the will, the will. Um, and that is the same muscle, that same will that enables us to preserve one of the most delicate uh, parts of our society, which is democracy, you know, and democracy is like cleaning your house. You have to do it every day, otherwise, you know, or, or, or flossing your teeth. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say you have to exercise it. It's something that doesn't just come delivered by Amazon. You have to do it every day. You have to invest time, effort, education. You have to know what you're talking about. Democracy does not work without culture. What I mean by culture is, you know, what's left from education when you've forgotten everything, you sort of what's washed through you and made you who you are. Um, and so it's a big effort and we're in trouble. We're losing the battle to ideology again, whether political or other. 
democracy is shrinking around the world. America was just came out of a period where it was teeter-tottering. Uh, and, you know, America has always been this melting pot. Therefore, it's always been a combination of a developing nation and a developed nation, the richest and also the most fast developing because of the huge influx of, you know, immigrants. And, um, and there's hunger in America. There's lack of culture in America. There's lack of, of, um, of a lot of things, you know, which is strange enough in Europe, and they've been doing it for such a long time that uh, it's become part of the texture of the tapestry of mm -hmm. the culture, family, helping each other, you know, um, we're much more op opportunistic in America. And so families sort of break apart and you run after your dream or your job or whatever, you know, you don't put roots and both have pros and cons. Um, and you, I, I don't want to carry on about that. That's, <laughs> With being um, Audrey Hepburn as your mother, what do you think was the biggest misconception about her that may that you may be able to shed light on that people may not know about her? I don't think there really was, which is probably one of the reasons why she's still so beloved today. And I've, I've sort of, especially when these sort of important dates come around, you know, and I've done hundreds of interviews and TV shows and kids call me all the time to do history month and so I do these on a regular basis I don't just do it for you or for Larry King bless his soul or whatever you know um, so I think that in the Hollywood firmament where maybe an Elizabeth Taylor is considered the untouchable Cleopatra you know super movie star my mother's really the girl from across the landing who goes out into the world with a little black dress and so we take somehow ownership of her she's one of us uh, and i think she always behaved like one of us at every step of the way whether it was the way she presented herself or the way she spoke or you know the, her humble manner and and certainly the work she did uh, for the children towards the end of her life so I don't think there are misconceptions. People often try to dig and find something about her because that's the way the media system is set up. And so I've seen people struggle to sort of find some kind of skeleton in the closet. You know, her father was a fascist. Yeah, well, she was devastated by it and didn't talk to him, you know, uh, during her adult life because of that. But she still honored him as the father and she still you know financially supported him until the end of his life so <clears throat> uh, maybe the greatest misconception is that she actually was exactly the way we saw her and people think well it must be acting well it wasn't it, she, she was very she wasn't act she wasn't a method actor who became you know, the new, the new Nouvelle Vague and the new actor. She was, um, in those days, you took the character and made it yours rather than you sort of getting into the character the way. In the end, it's very similar, you know. But all of the parts mm -hmm. are Audrey Hepburn doing, you know, rather than becoming. 
watching her with UNICEF traveling the world, she seemed to have such a sense of purpose and a calming peace about her that she was comfortable being with children and comfortable helping families. It seemed like that was her role for her, that she was meant for her entire life. What are you most proud of that she was able to accomplish with UNICEF towards the end of her life? I think it was a double-edged sword. You know, um, she came out of the war and the UN was created and a promise was made that this tragedy, the Holocaust and all of that would never happen again. And she's propelled, you know, uh, 40 years later um, into a reality which to her felt and tasted and smelled very much like that. And she spoke about the camps of 30,000 people waiting to die, the absolute science. Um, and so I think she felt very betrayed, and yet um, she took the next step and took the next trip and felt it was her contribution could do something because she saw that when she got before the Congress in the United States for a breakfast, she was able to get a hundred million dollars in one morning, you know. So, uh, towards something that she knew was was a, a real crisis and a real emergency. Um, UNICEF in the five years she was there, UNICEF doubled in size and the number of employees. So she certainly, of all of the wonderful people who have contributed to this government organization because in the end all of the ngos unicef are licensees to the main U un body which is in new york and geneva and which has the planes and you know the doctors and all of that and the teachers and the vaccines and all that so they have we really their wonderful fulfillment house if you may you know it's the oldest you know uh, um, you know humanitarian fulfillment method system that we have. Um, I'm, I, I'm very proud, so I'm, I, to answer your question, I think she fought two battles, one with herself, to be able to get up in the morning or go to bed at night with crushing, devastating pain, because she was not trained as a psychoanalyst or therapist or nurse or so she was out there. And what was the wonderful tool that she used her entire life to be able to understand people, to be able to play those roles, which was almost like a um, megaphone, a, an emotional megaphone, turned around on her and became deafening because she picked up all the anguish, the pain of everybody she was around. So maybe the battle with herself was equally as as uh, 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 important you know, mm -hmm. as the one that she had to fight on behalf of the children. What are you doing now for the future? I can't imagine what her legacy will look like in the next 50 years, in the next 30 years. So what is your family doing to keep her legacy and her name alive? We have really stopped. It, it, you know, I mean, people, marketing, promotion, publicity, all that is done to bring attention to something or someone or 
you know, a product or entertainment or toothbrush, you know, um, she has become permanently viral. And so when you become part of a culture, all we could do really at this point is undo it somehow. Mm-hmm. If it ain't broken, why fix it? So step back and it's all, it's almost like, you know, a child, you give it all the tools, you know, this wonderful phrase that the Steven Spielberg's mom said one day, the CNN guy or someone was interviewing and said, what did you do to make such a brilliant son? And she said, I love him to death and get out of the way. And so at now this legacy is, is 30 years old and it's going on its own road. Mm-hmm. And she has become in a kaleidoscopical way, kind of like a hero also to, in the last 20 years, I've noticed tweens and teens, you know, which today are young adults. And so her story is being passed on and it's, it's, it's more than a Hollywood story. It's more about a wonderful actress in movies that you like to watch on a rainy Sunday afternoon, you know, mm-hmm. with a blanket and cookies and milk. But it's, 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 it's something that feels sort of organic to a lot of people. I can't tell you why I knew the woman, you know, but today it somehow instinctively got picked up and it's what would Audrey do? How would she dress? I mean, she's in, you know, I have one of those uh, a, a, a Google search things that send you emails every time she's mentioned. And I've often said to myself, you know, you open your email in the morning, there's 120 emails, you know, it's amazing how often she gets, and that's only in English. I don't have it for Japanese, Chinese, Indian, or, you know, globally. Mm-hmm. Globally, she's perceived as a symbol, a symbol of something good. That's good enough for me and for this family, and, um, you know, everybody has to get on with their lives. But no, certainly we're not doing anything. I mean, yes, I'll, I'll do beautiful exhibition to, you know, to remember her by with the city of Brussels because they wanted to do something and she was born there and you know so but these are little local things you know even though they get picked up by news all over the world um, but as far, as far as what else I I can't I couldn't think of anything more because she's already viral do you and your family do you watch her films and if so what are your favorite ones to watch her in showed us her film. As I just told you, I, I had to go in the attic by myself and pull out an old Bell and Howell projector with that one, the flickering light and the mm-hmm. sound and that tinny speaker. And that's how I discovered her films. And certainly I have all the DVDs and the Blu-rays and the kids, you know, I have a barn, which is my office with a projection TV that looks actually kind of like a little theater or something. Nothing grand, but good enough. And so sometimes they come to spend the weekend and they'll watch one of her films or they'll watch something else, you know. Um, But um, Mm -hmm. I've certainly never pushed them. I'm sure, actually know that many of my kids have not seen uh, all of her films. And I include, when I say many, I include because my wife has to. They're all grown up. They're the youngest one is... Mm -hmm is 19 and, and um, uh, so but let them let them discover it on their own when the time is right then it will hit that nerve and 
you know, it'll become part of their life. I, I don't want to push it on them. There's no reason to. Well, I thank you for coming on today and sharing a little bit about your mother with us. And I love the fact that she has connected all of us globally with her smile, her sense of grace, but also her purpose, like you said, that is just continuing on much long after she's gone. So she made a huge effect in my life, even in my mother's life, my grandmother's life. And it's something that she has passed through every generation of families without even having to try. It's it's a it's a it's a, there's a wonderful poetic justice in this because in a way, she's being carried into the future, sort of like a Pied Piper, by the generations that she struggled so fervently to help, and you know the children, uh, and those children are the children she tried to help are now adults, those that survived, and uh, but it seems that she continues to touch that nerve. And sort of as you become an adolescent or a teen, you know, a twin teen, whatever, that's when you sort of, one of the things you take in is Audrey. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Little Bit of Life. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow on your favorite platform. And interact with the podcast Facebook as well as on Instagram at littlecute1az. We'll see you next time.